Well, good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. It's good to see you. Uh, my name's Jonah. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, welcome. Thanks for coming. Uh, this is a pretty fun week for us this past week. Uh, we had our trunk or treat, if you remember. Um, I have no idea how many people came, but it was way more than we thought. Uh, one group leader told us they gave uh, candy to 1,500 kids. Um, so if that's how many kids were there, you probably at least 10,000 humans, I would guess. That would be my guess. Uh, but if, if you weren't here for a solid like hour, hour and 15 minutes, the line wrapped around the building and then up Silver Street past the building, like past the playground to the edge of the fence. Uh, it was pretty wild. If you were one of the people who went out and grabbed some emergency hot dogs, thank you, uh, or went out to do some emergency candy refills, thank you. Uh, it was pretty overwhelming the way we were able to serve the neighborhood. So that was exciting. I was impressed by uh, your generosity as a church. And, and with that, um, this past week, something that you may not have uh, heard about, uh, Sojourn Network had its annual, um, we call it the Leader Intensive, and uh, Sojourn Network is a partnership that we started uh, out of Sojourn Community Church to see more churches started um, across the country and maybe one day across the world. And it was kind of overwhelming. There was um, somewhere between 400 and 500 people there, and that was the range of uh, people like me who are part of a Sojourn Network church or people who are interested or just kind of lonely pastors and their wives coming for some encouragement and fellowship. And it's just amazing. Every week when you guys put a little bit of that money in the bucket, uh, it goes to things like that, seeing more churches started across the country. And it's, it's kind of an abstract thing, like, oh, cool, Sojourn Network, we start churches. Um, and for me, it was much more vivid and tangible actually seeing these people uh, shaking hands with folks who are getting money every month to help start these new works. So it just filled me with a sense of gratitude for you all, thankfulness for your generosity as a church. And isn't it fun now we can, I don't know, I was going to say fake give, but it's real giving, but you get to do it now too. I've always felt sad. Like I remember one of the pastors telling me like, oh yeah, my wife and I pray over our check every week that we put in. And I was like, we auto pay and forget about it every month, felt much less holy. So uh, that's not another opportunity to be generous. Thanks. Um, so there's my introduction. All right. Well, we've got a new series happening this week. We finished the life of David, which was a ton of fun. Um, now, what's up on the screen right now? Yeah, solas. And maybe you're thinking, what, what in the world is a sola? That would be an excellent question. Um, solas, if you have a hard time pronouncing that, you can just think of rooted uh, or grounded because these uh, five truths that we're talking about um, are, are going to be all about our family roots. The word sola and its various uh, conjugations, means alone. So you could think of it like going sola. You see what I say? Going sola, going sola. You could think about flying sola. You could think about Han sola, whatever you are into. But you get the idea. It just, it means, it means blank alone. And the five solas, the five alones, form kind of the bedrock, the foundation of Christianity. And uh, there are family roots. This isn't some new idea that we're coming up with. There's some innovative new sermon series. These are truths that have been articulated for thousands of years. Uh, but like, like many families, uh, the family of Christianity can tend to be a forgetful one. And some of that's just the natural course of how us humans work. I mean, I'd be curious how many of us could name an ancestor from 100 years ago, someone in our own family lineage from 100 years ago or 200 years ago. You know, there's something in us that can just forget who we are and where our family comes from. What's fascinating about these roots, though, is they set the world on fire, um, both 
metaphorically and literally. Uh, this is, these truths that we'll be unpacking are, are what kind of catapulted Christianity from this marginalized group of, of people trying not to be killed uh, to one of the greatest forces for good, perhaps the greatest force for good that the world has ever known. Uh, in 300 short years from the death of Christ, uh, 300 years after that, Christianity um, went from being a persecuted minority to a world power. How does this kind of thing happen? We haven't really seen something like this happen in human history before. Um, as Christianity became synonymous with political power, though, we started forgetting. We started uh, drifting from our family roots. And so Christianity... In the 300s, a few hundred years after Jesus died and resurrected, Christianity had stopped being as much about the people of God, walking in fellowship with God, and it, it became more about empire building. Maybe you've heard this term Christendom, this idea of the Christian empire. Uh, Christianity became uh, about power. Um, it became about influence, about control. And at, at the core of this was a forgetting of who our roots or what our roots were, who, who we are as a family. The, the symptoms of forgetting that they experienced back then are much the same as we experience today. Uh, and he, here's, here's a quick litmus test. <coughs> Let's do something weird because it's early in the morning. <coughs> I hope you enjoy my coughing throughout this sermon. Uh, okay, close your eyes. Everybody close your eyes. Or just put your head down and pretend you're closing your eyes. Now, I want you, I want you to imagine that Jesus has just come up on stage. Um, don't look. He, he's here in spirit, but not in body. Uh, so just imagine that he's here, though. And as he scans the room, he's looking right at you. Of all the people here this morning. He's looking right at you. And I want you to try to imagine what is his facial expression as he looks at you? What's the posture of his body as he's looking at you right now? So you can open your eyes now. If, if he seems angry to you, if he seems disappointed in you, if he seems a little bit frustrated with you, or he's giving you that look like, I'm glad you're here, but you could be doing better. You've forgotten. You've, you've forgotten your family roots. If you feel guilty under the, the weight of his gaze, if there's something in you that would be uh, hesitant or nervous to even make eye contact with him. Maybe if you feel shame and you feel small because you know that he knows what you did, whether it was last night or 20 years ago, that secret you've been carrying. If you feel hopelessly overwhelmed over all you have to do to fix your life, um, You've forgotten your family roots. And, and this was the widespread cultural reality when this middle-aged monk named Martin Luther wrote 
a document in 1517. He was a bit of a rare monk in that he actually read the Bible. Back then in the 1500s, there's hundreds of years where most Christians never read the Bible, including the priests. But Martin Luther was educated, um, and he actually read the Bible, which is just kind of a side note. Probably the worst thing that can happen to forgetful Christians is the Bible. Um, because, because in the Bible, God speaks with wonderful clarity. And in there, Luther saw what had been forgotten. He wrote a document called the 95 Theses. And these were 95 statements, uh, positions that Luther came convicted to believe based on just reading the Bible. And like a good professor, uh, you know, we have this image of Martin Luther going up to the doors of the church in Wittenberg and just like pounding the nails in and getting all indignant. He was, that was like the town bulletin board. And he was like, hey, let's have coffee and talk about this. He was being a good professor, trying to spark discussion amongst his students. And little did he know that this would, again, set the world on fire, literally and figuratively, over the course of the next 500 years. Um, what he shared in those 95 theses was not new. And in fact, it was very old. It was our family history. It was the foundations of our faith. And the power that changed the world then, I think, has the power to, at the very least, change us today. Um, to understand what happened and why it was so significant, uh, we, we need to understand a little bit about what it means to be a human. Uh, listen to how today's text describes our situation. This is Romans 5 verse 17. I forgot. I'm in charge of my slides now. Bam! Hey, who did it for me? Not cool. That's hey, let's see what our text today says, Romans 5. Thank you. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. So Adam is the first human being, and it's his rebellion, his sin, has caused death to rule over his descendants. So humans were created for life. Um, we were created to grow, to develop, and to flourish. And, and this life, this growing, was both biologically and spiritually connected to God. It was almost like an umbilical cord. Humans weren't made to die. We weren't made to decay. We weren't made to get sick. And when Adam sinned and rebelled against God, that connection became severed. So what does it mean when it says death rules over us? Well, well first, after our sin, after our turning from God, it meant that humans would die now. And can you imagine what that reality would be like? even trying to understand the concept of that, biological death is now a reality all of us will face. We will all die unless the Lord comes back before. But second, there isn't just this date of our death. Uh, there's also the reality that we are in a continual state of death and decay. Our bodies are breaking down. We get sick. Our eyesight fails us. Our minds don't work as clear and fresh as we used to. You hit your 30s and you find bizarre pains in your body, right? And just me. Yeah, yeah, I know you, I know, you know. <coughs> so there's that decay that hits, but then there's also something even worse that happens. Um, things that destroy us, 
Things like lying or greed, uh, coveting, even literal murder. All of a sudden, they look appealing to us. Uh, Things that cause death and bring destruction start feeling attractive to us. We ran from life with God. We pursued life on our own terms. And scripture would describe our condition this way. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We've left God's paths to follow our own. So we had this connection with God that was life-giving, that caused us to be healthy and whole. And when that was severed as a result of rebellion, all of us start going our own way. We start doing what seems right to us, even when that leads to death. And hopefully by your early 20s, you know this is true. You know this is true about you. You lie when you didn't really have a reason to lie. Uh, You don't follow through in your commitments. You make promises and you follow through or you fall through. I mean, the examples are, are endless. So part of what it means to inherit death is that all of us in our hearts desire to turn from God's ways and follow our own. This is why we forget. This is why we're inclined to trust ourselves instead of God. So in Luther's day, then 500 some years ago, Tuesday will be the 500 year anniversary of Luther nailing this document on the church walls. Um, The church offered in Luther's day to reunite you with God for a price. Uh, There wasn't so much a disagreement about whether or not God saved. Uh, The disagreement was, what is your role in that? And so the plan essentially was, and again, this is nobody reads the Bible here except for a very select few people. Uh, The system was work hard, do really good, And if your good things outweigh your bad things, then on judgment day, Jesus will let you into heaven. Uh, We we have this belief today. I hear this a couple of times a month. Um, The the theological position is God helps those who help themselves, right? So here's the things you have to do to make sure on judgment day, you do right with God. Now, here's the problem. Some people are real bad at that, right? Other people are pretty good at that. Uh, The people who are really good at that might get like the fast pass. You ever been to Disney World and you get the fast pass and you can skip the lines and all that kind of stuff? Some people get fast pass and they, they have so much good in their life that they have extra good, right? Like they've, they've, they've done extra good. And the church gets the surplus. They get your rollover minutes when you go into heaven. Now, for you people who don't do so good, the church was like, hey, I've got a great idea for you, Phil. If you come, and just give me a little bit of money, I will, I will give you some of somebody else's extra good works. Um, and they also came up with a system of how all of us could, even if you don't have enough money, how you could pay off your good works. It's the system called purgatory, where once you die, you'll get anywhere from 1,000 to 800 million years in this kind of fiery torture where you pay off your debt. And priests began saying things like, well, you know, Grandma Gertrude didn't live so good and you're doing all right, and look at all this money you have. If you gave just a little extra money, you know, we'll knock 1,618 days off of purgatory for grandma. So people would pay. The, the church in Luther's day was willing to say, you can be reunited with God for a price. Now, for an introductory rate, 0% financing. The priest had essentially become like a local salesman willing to dole out blessings with just a small markup. 
the life of faith, the life of Christianity, became a life of work. Religion was a list of rules to follow, all in hopes of one day earning enough so that you could be reunited with God. And we laugh at some of the, you know, they called it the selling of indulgences, or we look at that and think it's ridiculous. But when you look at the posture of what's going on, the actual core of it, boy, I don't know that much has changed. The religious life is this list of things that we do to know um, whether or not we've done enough. The, the life of faith, the religious life, becomes a self-improvement plan aimed at earning the smiles of God. And the byproduct of this is the people of God living in guilt, fear, this perpetual state of exhaustion, a deep restlessness, wondering, am I enough? Have I done enough? Did I do enough today? Am I safe? These are not historical questions from where I stand. These are questions I'm talking with you about week in and week out. These are questions I'm wrestling with. Am I enough? Have I done enough? Am I safe? Laying in bed at night wondering, how did God feel about my day today? Don't we all have this checklist of if you do these things, then you know God is good with you that day. But if you do these things, well then, you better do better tomorrow. These questions persist. And the fact that most who spend years in the church find themselves, after maybe decades of going to church, find themselves guilty, afraid, and exhausted are indications that we have once again forgotten. <coughs> so what did Luther discover? What did he find tucked in the pages of the Bible that ignited what became known as the Protestant Reformation. Which, just as a side note, if you're not Catholic, uh, you should be a fan of protests, because Protestant protests. We can talk about that later. Uh, one of my favorite pastors has a beautiful description of the Protestant Reformation. It began in 1517 as a protest against phony, forgetful Christianity as a mockery of what God had revealed in his word and the influence that it had on his people. Uh, so here's how one of my favorite pastors described what happened. The Reformation was a time when men went blind, staggering drunk, because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old, 200-proof grace. Oh, boy. Bottle after bottle of pure distillate of scripture, one sip of which would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly. The word of the gospel, after all those centuries of trying to lift yourself into heaven by worrying about the perfection of your bootstraps, suddenly turned out to be a flat announcement that the saved were home before they started. Grace has to be drunk straight. No water, no ice, and certainly no ginger ale. Neither goodness nor badness, not the flowers that bloom in the spring of super spirituality could be allowed to enter into the case. 
Luther found our biblical family roots. We are saved by grace alone. Sola gratia, they cried. Grace alone. And they found it hidden in the dusty old pages of Bibles that had been long forgotten and left to rot in the basements of old cathedrals. Here's what they found back in Romans 5. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Yes, because Adam sinned, all inherit and earn condemnation, all experience death. But think about the implications of what this verse is saying. No, you will not solve this problem through piety. You will not solve it through your rule following or through your moral purity. No, a priest cannot wave his hand and make it go away. They made children starting at the age of seven confess their sins to a priest and go through a battery of questions, all in hopes of saying the right thing so that the priest could know what you need to do. And what Luther is saying, what the reformers are saying, what the Bible is saying is no. A priest cannot wave his hand and make it go away. No, you cannot buy your way into heaven. No, political power cannot reunite you with God. The gospel of Jesus announces a single-handed salvation. We have a works-based salvation. It's just that it's not your works that form the basis of your salvation. It's Christ's one work of righteousness that brings new life for everyone. I want to, I'm going to throw this back up there. Notice it doesn't say, but Christ's one act of righteousness gives you the chance. That Christ's one act of righteousness is a booster shot. Christ's one act of righteousness gives you a do-over. Like all of these things, all of these thoughts that have infected the church. Christ wipes you clean because you get out of jail free card. Now, what are you going to do with it this time around? You, you better make it worthwhile. No. Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. To be saved by grace. And this is where if you're a little bit awake, you should start getting uncomfortable if you're not uncomfortable already. To be saved by grace means you bring nothing to the table. It means you haven't entered into a negotiation with God and gotten out the scales. Sometimes I feel like we try to argue over who's more sick and we think that our sin problem is like an illness that, you know, if you've got a cold, you can gut it out. If you've got a cough like I do, like just put some Ricola in and just go you can do better. But if you've got cancer, that's real serious. Uh, the Bible describes it, if you sin, you're dead. And that's a pretty exhaustive category, right? The, the categories in the scriptures are dead or alive. And what, what we are arguing for, what the scriptures are trying to help you see, is that when it comes to life with God and relationship with God, you bring to the table as much as a corpse brings to the table. Whether you have bootstraps or bare feet, makes no difference. It is grace alone that saves. It's pure gift. And it had been hidden away in the basements of old cathedrals, dusty and forgotten. So what does this actually mean for us, though, other than a thought experiment and some interesting history? Why did this reality change the world? 
What is it about this truth that left the reformers, as that pastor said, spinning under its influence, feeling a little tipsy? Listen to how Paul continues in Romans 5. (coughs) He says, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. (coughs) God's law talks about all the rules in the Old Testament, all the instructions that God gives us for how to live. Um, It's a pretty interesting perspective shift. God gives us all of these rules to try to convince us of how broken we are. Try to help us see how sinful we are. If you want to test the waters of salvation by grace alone, you need to start thinking about the rules of God a little more biblically. Most of them see, see them as this heavy weight, and here's the things you have to do to keep God happy with you. God gives these rules, I think, to a certain extent to restrain sin's influence, keep us from going crazier than we probably would if there weren't some rules. Uh, But more so, all of these rules are given to convince us how broken we are. And if, like, you realize how many, how many rules did God give Adam? Come on, church. Yeah, in the back. One, okay? Not too tough of a rule. Don't eat that one tree. Probably thousands of other trees and plants to eat from, but just that one? Just remember whose garden this is, kids, right? That's dad's tree. And so after that, a couple, uh, who knows how long later, uh, how many rules does he give Israel when they get out of Egypt? Ten, right? So we've increased the rule number by tenfold. Couldn't keep one. What are the odds of us keeping ten? Not so good. Uh, But we keep on trying. We keep trying to make a name for ourselves. We keep trying to be impressive and do the thing and, Show how every, whatever, we're so holy and pious and God loves us because look at all we've done. So God's like, you fools, like one didn't work. Y'all ain't doing 10 so well. So he kind of drops the hammer and gives us 600 some rules in Leviticus. But what, how you can cook shellfish, how should you wash your hands? I mean, the rules and the rules and the rules. And only a fool thinks that God did that with the expectation that suddenly they would pull it off. Couldn't do one, couldn't do 10. Hey, I know, guys, 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 can you see God like bringing Jesus in the spirit close and be like, guys, 638, that's what we need. It's, it's crazy. Like many of us feel perpetually crushed and condemned by God's rules. And this is why you are exhausted. You know you don't match up. Grace means that Your failures don't need to condemn you anymore as much as they can now instruct you. And here's what I mean. Like, if you're here this morning feeling the weight of condemnation, it's time for you to give up. (laughs) I went to church and he told me to give up. That's right. And here's what I mean. I want you to feel the grace of God convincing you that you cannot fix your mess. I want you to feel God's grace trying to show you how overwhelmingly up over your head you are in this mess of sin and brokenness in your life. You will never do enough to earn God's pleasure. If you're one of these spiritual addicts looking for a church that will just tell you what to do so every week you can feel better about yourself, go to a different place. 
because you will hear far more often here that you can't do this. You will never achieve enough to earn God's pride in you, ever. In the Old Testament, God says, all of your righteous works are like filthy rags to me. And if you want to feel how offensive that is, just go home and Google what that word actually means there. The grace of God uses the law to destroy in us all notions of self-righteousness. It, it just throws rule after rule on us to break us of this belief that we can be enough, that we can do enough, that we can earn enough. If you are exhausted, if you are worn out trying to keep all of these rules, I hear God convincing you, pleading with you that enough is enough. Hear him saying to you, stop it. If, if you can get this far, if you can get to the place of saying, I can't do this. I am exhausted. I, I am worn out. You are so close. You're so close to finding what Luther found. You've begun turning the spigot of that 200 proof grace. You're beginning to smell the aromas that were locked away for years and years. If you're willing to go down this road and agree with this, you'll find that you cannot outsin grace. You cannot undo what God has done. Grace alone means that you're saved by grace alone. Or, or to put it another way, you're not saved by anything else. It's grace, not your sin, that will get the last word in your life. Verse 20. As people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. Steve, the people that I need to convince the least that this is true are the people who've really screwed their lives up. They've been disavowed of any notion that they're, good, they're a good person. It's us people who live kind of decent lives, uh, who follow most of the rules. We have the sense of we deserve this. What Paul's saying here is, you know, the more you're willing to admit your own brokenness, the more you'll see how much the grace of God overflows. The, the more you're willing to see how twisted you are, the more you will see God's wonderful, glorious grace and its abundance. So I want you to take some inventory. We did our, our awkward church exercise earlier. What reasons do you have for thinking that God sees you the way he does? When, when you closed your eyes and imagined him looking at you, why is God so angry with you? Why is God so disappointed in you? Whatever that is, grace says that's not enough to quench God's love for you. Maybe you feel like the people in Luther's day and you're longing for a way to fix yourself. Maybe you grew up in a church that told you to clean yourself up for God. And maybe they had really good reasons for telling you that. 
what we as a church are trying to say to you from the scriptures is that that is not biblical Christianity. That is not our family roots. Earlier in Romans 5, Paul says this, God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Hallelujah. God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us once we had committed to doing better. Once we had come, like anybody ever read Jonathan Edwards in your 20s and his, all of his resolutions and you went to write 15 of them and couldn't get past number two? The seminary students are laughing because they read Jonathan Edwards. <laughs> God didn't wait for us to clean up. God did not wait for us to get it right. He loved us in advance. He loved us already. And because he loved us into our brokenness, he sent his son to die for us. So listen, listen to what this means. Just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In other words, grace always wins. You can't outsin the grace of God. Here's, an, here's another way to put it. Grace alone means this. No matter what you've done or what you will do in Christ, God only has smiles for you. Whatever you were thinking, the presence of Christ here when your eyes were closed looked at you as a child he loves dearly. He was smiling at you. He's pleased with you. He takes incredible pride in you. What reunites you with God? The work of Jesus alone. And listen, you can't undo this. If it's based on the work of Jesus, can you hop in the TARDIS and go back 2,000 years and take Jesus off the cross? You can't undo what he's done, which means grace wins. Nothing can change God's posture towards you if you are in Christ. And the pressure is off. So suddenly, this whole system of proving yourself to God and to one another, of earning your lot in life, was completely destroyed. This means that if you fail, God loves you and you're safe. This means if you sin, God loves you and you are safe. It means if you suffer, God loves you and you are safe. The, the, as far as I can tell, the only prerequisite in Christianity is brokenness. The only requirement is neediness. And the rest has been taken care of by your Father who loves you. So remember, people of God, your one-way salvation. Re remember that the pressure is off and you have nothing left to prove. Remember that you are hopelessly, unimaginably loved by God. And so we come to communion to ground ourselves in this reality. This is what is symbolized in this meal that Jesus gives to us. First, how we know we are loved. Some of you, it doesn't take much for you to forget how passionately you are loved. That verse in Romans 5 says, we have evidence of God's love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so we remember that through this meal. Second, how we know we are safe. Christ's perfect righteousness is given to us through his body broken for us and his blood shed for us. Every week when we gather for communion, we're protesting against a world that says, prove it. 
We're, we're protesting against a world that says, make a name for yourself. Here's what you have to do to know you're okay. And instead, we hold up a piece of bread and we remember what Jesus said. This is my body broken for you. Eat this and remember what I've done for you. Remember your roots. After the meal, he took a cup of wine and he says, this cup is my blood and remember what makes you safe with God. It's my blood shed for you. What seals your relationship with God? My blood shed for you. It is grace alone. If you're here and you're not a Christian, um, how does this sound? How does it sound? God sees you tired. He sees you worn out from life. And he says, come to me and I will give you rest. I know, I know you far more than you know you. And it's okay because of what I've done for you. I don't know how you see Jesus, but I would encourage you to look to the cross as evidence that your father in heaven loves you and desires to know you. If you're here and you're a Christian, what might happen if you weren't so scared? What, what might happen? if you weren't so worried about being a failure? What, what might happen if you really believed that nothing could change your standing with God and the future security of your soul? You see how this might start changing the world? Who, who might you go talk to? Who might you be willing to invite to church? Who might you be willing to go have dinner at their house, even though they're one of those people? Uh, what if even those people can be saved? What if there's room in God's house even for them? What might happen if we as a people believed that we're saved by grace alone? Our invitation is to come forward and remember, maybe as a plea that we want to believe, and Lord, help us to believe this is true. Our tradition is to rip off a piece of bread, dip it in wine or juice. Uh, the wine has a piece of twine wrapped around it, and uh, there'll be gluten-free elements to my left, your right. We'll also have stations in the back. Uh, you can go wherever you'd like. Um, I'll pray for us, and then Christians come participate as you're ready. Let's pray.